This episode is brought to you by Safe Catch Elite Tuna, the only brand to test every tuna for mercury. Wild, sustainably caught, and cooked to perfection. You're guaranteed more nutrients and taste than other leading brands. Go to safecatch.com primal and get 20% off your first order. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have one of my favorite writer and producers, Charles C.J. Hunt, who wrote and produced the world's first paleo movie or documentary called The Perfect Human Diet, and also the how-to companion book to the film of the same name. You can see more about C.J. at cjhuntreports.com. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Elle. I have a pleasure to be here. So I love your documentary. I recommend it to everybody. It's really sort of the first and sort of only strictly super primal paleo ancestral documentary. And I want to start off by by getting into, if people don't know who you are and haven't seen the film, you had a really incredible near-death experience that led to sort of a 10-year search for the perfect human diet. And can you tell us how you started started your journey? Oh, sure. When I was 24 years old, I was a dirt bike racer in sport of motocross, which is like an off-road steeplechase on motorcycles, if people don't know what that is. And I went out, uh, I got injured, and I was out jogging to get back in shape. And uh, on Memorial Day 1978 at at, uh, Beverly Hills High School, I dropped dead of a cardiac arrest. And um, so they do actually do say that it's uh, sudden death, because at that point, uh, about Four or five, six minutes later, an anesthesiologist showed up and started working on me until the paramedics got there. And then they jump-started me um, and brought me back to life and transported me to UCLA Medical Center, where I spent 10 days in intensive care while they tried to figure out what in the world happened. How (laughs) how long were you technically dead for? I mean... uh, Well, you know, my heart wasn't uh, pumping blood, they figure, for at least you know, somewhere between six and 10 minutes. In fact, when I was being transported to uh, UCLA, the paramedics were asking me all these questions to try to assess how much brain damage might have happened. And I said, well, how could you know? You didn't know me before. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, how do you know if I'm any less intelligent? <laughs> that's right. You have no benchmark. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting. So I guess all in all, I was very lucky to come out of it, uh, you know, with all my fingers and toes and apparently some some brain cells left. Yeah, well, enough to make a great film, <laughs> even if you drop off now. So at the time, I mean, you were 24 years old. What was the diagnosis? I mean, what, what caused this heart attack for you, in your opinion or their opinion or looking back? I mean, you know, how do you assess that? You're 24 years old. I mean, and you were jogging. I'm assuming you were living what you thought was a healthy life, so... Absolutely. You know, and I was in sports and I wanted to be a world-class athlete. And um, um, basically what they came away with was that I had a heart birth defect. And at the time, they didn't know as much about it as they do now. Um, But it's what you commonly see in the news when athletes in high school or college drop dead on 
the field and they can't get them back. Is that an enlarged heart situation? It's or? a cardi- cardiomyopathy. It's, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They used to call it idiopathic hypertrophic subaiotic stenosis for those who <laughs> want to dig into that. But now it's usually called hokum, which is hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. So the long and short of it is the center of my heart is twice as thick as normal. The left chamber that pumps the blood back out into the body is therefore smaller. And also it kind of interferes with the way my valves work. So there's a physical obstruction and then also an electrical issue because the cells grew abnormally, and so the, I get unusual electrical impulses. You know, the, it'll, I'll get heart runs that go for 20 or 30 seconds that come out of nowhere, that kind of thing. Oh, wow, and you still have to deal with that? Today? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, and, and um, actually one of the things that compelled me to, you know, get off the dime and do the movie and ultimately the book was that um, my heart condition got worse because it's a birth defect. And, you know, I started having more trouble going upstairs and I started having, you know, being dizzy or just sitting at a table and that kind of thing. And I said, well, if I'm ever going to get on with this, I better do it now. You know, if I want to do something good with my life and, and uh, try to, you know, help the world, make the world a better place. Well, so You really did by your film. And also, I mean, if, if anyone has not seen CJ, you are the pillar of health in terms of how you look, you, you look amazing, you look healthy and vibrant, your skin is glowing, you perfect weight and shape and form. You, you really are for, I don't even know how old you are, but I know you're older and look better than probably anybody your age. <laughs> you, you really do. Tell us though, so you, you went, you, there's another health situation that happened later, but you did a lot of personal experimentation. You went and you did everything from water fast to vegetarianism to being a raw food vegan. I mean, you did everything. And so, Let's talk about what was the first introduction and in, after all of those experimentations into ancestral living and learning about that. Well, the first place that I noticed it, um, and as you said, I tried all these other things. And then um, uh, I had one of those pivotal moments where my mom was killed by a drunk driver and I was a raw food vegan and had been for five years. And after a little while, my I just wasn't recovering from the emotional and physical trauma of all that. And something inside said, eat fish. <laughs> you know, Interesting. That, you just had an impulse so, one day that was like, you know yeah. what, eat fish. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then somewhere along the line there, as I got into becoming a news reporter, because I was in news for a while, I came across Mike Eads' book, Protein Power. And in that uh, first publication was a paragraph or two about, well, this all is based on what's called paleolithic uh nutrition and, and understanding of our ancient, uh, you know, our ancestry. And, uh, but that wasn't carried very far because in those days, if you said too much about that, people thought you were nuts. And, um, they still do a little bit. Depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the media certainly does. You know, they keep defaulting back to their vegan, uh, uh, beliefs, but in vegetarian, but, um, Anyway, so yeah, I saw it first there. Then I saw an article that was in um, a Dallas newspaper a few years later, uh, an interview with Lauren Cordain long before he wrote a book. And um, those are the things that where I first was exposed to that. And then later when I got into the news and I, obesity, of course, as it still is, just continued to get worse. And all the places we were looking were just the same. I said, well, where else can we look? And then I, I remember Mike Eads' book and I said, well, you know, even though a couple of people have written about this, no one's ever really gone out on a search. 
to see if this was true. And um, at the time, Peter Jennings was still alive, an ABC News anchor, for those that may not have uh, known of him. And he had a show called In Search Of. And he did In Search of Jesus and all sorts of other things. But what was really interesting at that time is he went out on location and took you to, to each of the sites to do this discovery process with you so that it was if you went along as well. And that was the basis for the film was because this was before we had reality television and we had people running all over the world with camera crews. Um, so that was uh, much more unique at the time. And um, so I said, well, let's go see what we can find. And that's really uh, what launched the film side of it. Nice. Yeah, I, I, there's so many things about your film I love. I'm going to get into some details, but I want to, sure. and maybe this number is bigger now, but you know, you talk about in your film about how 147 billion or so plus a year is spent on obesity issues. And it's a tough analogy a little bit, or it may at first seem a little bit strange to make this analogy, but I really think it is so important, the 9-11 analogy that you make in the film. Um, Do you mind kind of running that down? Because I think it's really important because like you say, you know, 9-11 was such a, you know, when something like 9-11 happens and uh, and of course, with all respect to the families and people who lost anyone, it was such a huge event, right? And it shocked and it was a real threat. And we all woke up to that. And you make a great comparison to the numbers regarding type 2 diabetes and obesity. And I, if you could kind of run that by us, I I really like that because it hits home. Well, the, the, um, Obesity and obesity-related causes at the the time that that sequence was made, and it could be higher now, was between three hundred fifty and four hundred thousand people died every year from these preventable causes. And in nine eleven, it was you know I don't remember the exact numbers anymore, but it was a little over three thousand people were killed. So obesity and diet-related disease that is killing people unnecessarily was basically the same as one 9-11 every three days. You're in and you're out, right? You're in and you're out and continuing even to this day. So over the next decade, that means, you know, four million people would have died. And it's a decade now since I first shot that um, uh, material, um, you know, have died unnecessarily because they've had bad information that continues to be, you know, promoted as the way to be healthy. So, yeah, it's a pretty shocking analogy. And that's, you know, and in the same way in the book, in the film, I say with all, you know, all due respect, you know, we're not, we're not getting it. You know, people are lost in the numbers. They're lost into, oh, it's, you know, so many billion dollars a year is lost because of obesity. But that doesn't mean anything to people. It doesn't, you know, we're not connected to that, but we are connected to um, shocking events like 9-11 where there's a dramatic instantaneous loss of life. And, you know, the same reason we, you know, respond to earthquakes and floods and all that other kind of thing. But there has been no... A moment like that for people to understand obesity and uh, a diet-related disease. You know, it's just kind of floating along and it's always out there and it's persistent and it doesn't seem, uh, there doesn't seem to be enough motivation for everyone to get off the dime and say, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, look what we did when we were worried about airports. <laughs> the- right, like where's the shock? Where's the horror? Where is the, you know, if you really look at these numbers, right? Like you're talking about 9-11 every three days, 
the world should be up in arms about this, yet we just kind of sit by and watch a thousand diabetes commercials roll <laughs> on, oh, yeah. on the television. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the latest, you know, medication that you can take to control that? Because there's, you know, a lot of folks in the medical field that don't believe people will uh, maintain a healthy lifestyle. So therefore they create um, other ways of dealing with the problem. Um, and there's also no financial incentive, <laughs> you know, for these right, companies. to help people get to, healthy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the unfortunate side of it as well. Well, but and yeah. you, had, you had a doctor, Lane Sebreen, in your documentary mention, you know, so sad. And I'm sure this is classic everywhere right now. But, you know, an 11-year-old, before even hitting puberty, having type 2 diabetes. And, you know, it's it's such a it's such an epidemic. It's such a disaster. And, um, you know, well, and, yeah, before and even hitting puberty, that. like you're already losing in your first 10 years of life. Like, I mean, it's disaster. Well, well and what, he, what was, I think what's really interesting about Dr. Sebring is that, is he was a regular medical doctor, came across these principles, changed his practice and saw the difference it would make in people's lives. And like in the example you just gave, that child, he had never seen that before in his early years of medicine. Right. And it and it, it right. Was, He'd only seen it in people over fifty or something. Right. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Uh, but now, those were the kind of sad stories that you hear. Is that you know someone who hasn't even hit puberty, you know, and then that the thing that flew around the last couple of years was that you know this generation uh, won't live as long as their parents did, you know, and may die before their parents <laughs> because of these you know health problems. I mean that's you know, kind of a general capture of that feeling. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a tragedy of epic proportions and it's, uh, it just doesn't seem to grab people the urgency uh, that is really would be a good response to that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know if, it, think of it this way, Al, if the ancestral health, paleo community and whatnot had the same kind of um, call like a, a cruise, like the vegetarian, vegan, environmental crusade, and there's a reason it's, you know, they're on a crusade. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how healthy they get and, and it's great that they got, they feel like they got good results and that it, but they believe it will save the world and that people who don't do that are bad. <laughs> you know, right. You know. It's, it's different. They don't see it as just a choice that it's a different. Um, well, and I well, let's get into that because one of the things I love about your film, there's actually some comedy in there, not necessarily intentional, <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, really for me, very hilarious part. You uh, end up at like a vegetarian convention and um some of the things that people say in that section of the film are are really interesting like for example you know you ran into a woman who makes soy jerky and she called meat artery clogging and says we're anatomical herbivores and you know says our digestive system works but you know is better suited to be vegetarian and it's great because after that your film just nails all of the science from anthropologists paleontologists just all of the experts there's no such thing as an inherent vegetarian or vegan human in terms of our metabolic machinery. Like there's like perhaps there's groups of people in tribes who once chose not to eat meat, but as far as actual humans goes, you know what I mean? Like there's there's no machinery there built in that says, "Oh, there's a human uh subset that's vegetarian or vegan." Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, there's so many yeah. great, you know, uh well, you great know, the proof mo- in there. 
I yeah, I visited the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany, and these folks um, have a human a department of human evolution, and they've been doing digs all over the world. And because of the uh, scientific advancements in technology, they can actually tell you what. Uh, people ate, people and animals um, around the world uh, because they're able to extract the collagen and tell you from the collagen where the protein source came from, the nitrogen. And uh, so without getting too complex, they can tell you whether it came from plants, whether it came from animals, whether it came from fish, whether it was ocean fish, whether it was inland. It's really pretty amazing. So, but in every human they have found, and there's thousands of them, there are no vegans or vegetarians. And uh, this is a completely new and recent uh, experiment that people have decided to jump into, but it's not how we evolved and it's not uh, part of the normal human diet. Yeah. This does that answer? Yeah, does it that... does. Well, you know, I'd love you to get into a little bit about our digestive system, right? Like herbivores versus carnivores, because you kind of go get into that in the film. And for people that don't understand that distinction and wonder where vegetarians and vegans, whether they're right or not, when they claim our digestive system is is properly suited to vegetarianism, can you explain the difference well, between like a cow and a horse and versus? Well, a, well, you know, I mean, well, a I, cow, yeah. you know, they they have four stomachs, and they, you know, it'll go down into one stomach and then you know digest the plant matter a little bit, but and come back up and they'll chew it. And like Dr. Eads says in the film that sometimes these animals will even eat their own feces to try to extract more and more nutrition out of that. Um, and it goes through that whole process. And they're able to break down cellulose and things in plants in order to extract some uh, nutrition out of it. But we're not built that way. You know, we're built more, we're, we have a carnivorous system. We're built, you know, with a single stomach and, um, uh, we aren't set up to break down plant material uh, and extract the um, nutrition out of them. I mean, that's one reason why I mean, we're able to do that to a degree is because of cooking, you know, it, by breaking it down artificially and then eating it and extracting what we can out of it. But the uh, but hum, humans, we're not even, you know, <laughs> this will probably upset some people. Okay. Some, we are not. <laughs> We are not omnivores. We are, we are, you know, we're not obligate carnivores, you know, because we can um, Eat expand. Some food, right, right. We can expand our resources and and do okay on that. Um, but we are oppor- because of opportunity and because of the chain, the way we've changed the planet, we have become more omnivorous. You know, so it, but it is not our. Uh, normal state of being based on uh, pre-agricultural times. You know, when you look at the Paleolithic, I mean, humans came up at the, what's called the Upper Paleolithic. It's just the last couple hundred thousand years. So if I can do a quick sidebar, this is one of the things that's confusing within the paleosphere is they go, oh, well, we ate this stuff for two and a half million years. Well, not exactly. (laughs) So it's it's that... um, our ancient ancestors, I mean, the, with the real story in this two and a half million years is the uh, eating more and more meat, fat, marrow, and brains over time. And then the species evolved to pop, here come modern humans about 160,000 years ago or so out of Africa. And, and, and 
at the very beginning, sure, there was more plant matter being eaten, but those weren't humans. (laughs) You know, they they were not us. And that's part of where the vegetarian and vegan movement turns back to and says, well, look, we were eating it back there, so it must have been better for us. Right, but on that note, and you know, uh, in my upcoming book, The Paleothyroid Solution, I have several quotes uh, from your film, and one of them was uh, one that I really love. Uh, the guy who um, was talking was talking to you, and he said, "Had we not ate brains, meat, marrow, and developed that, I would not be having this intellectual conversation with you, you know, or something like that." Like he's like, "I wouldn't be talking to you on this level." So you know, when you mention that, you're talking about also just really becoming human also in an intellectual brain way. I mean, there's, there's a huge difference between before and after when we started eating meat. Could you talk a little bit about the development of the brain and, and, and that? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that fellow that I was talking to is, um, at the American museum of natural history. And, uh, you know, he was explaining that all to me as well is that encephalating the the brain or growing the brain cells was only possible because of these high uh, density nutrients that we started eating more of. And that was, uh, I mean, and that's one of the things, and that's one of the reasons why I encourage people to see the film. And if they want to go deeper into those interviews, I expanded those in the book because there's only so much you can cover in an hour and a half, you know, in a movie is that um, these, you know, the anthropologists that, I spoke with and, you know, are able to show us that this is why we grew and developed the brains that we have today. You know, actually, we they may have even been better before, but that's another discussion. They were better about, you know, 100,000 years ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there is a concern about decline now, but... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's just it. Is that that we got smaller guts and, and because we had high nutrient density foods and and more and more animal foods and it's the it's that change in the diet that made us human. It was the becoming human story, and um, it we shouldn't like Lane Sebring would say is you know we shouldn't just throw that away <laughs> without saying, well, wait a minute, there's a reason those things happen that way, you know? And if we start messing with that system, then we're liable to get some effects that we, you know, were unexpected or that we may not prefer. So, um, I mean, so generally that, that's the arc is that it's this whole two and a half million years was the story of our ancestors eating more and more meat and marrow and brains. And, um, for example, from the dig site that you see in the film at Jean Zuck, um, there were hundreds of thousands of years of Neanderthals, and then humans came in there towards the end, and then the Neanderthals disappeared. But the, the evidence that that is one of um, lots of... Uh, you know, animal, horses, bison, um, and those kinds of things. And very few small animals, interestingly enough, um, when we think of eating chicken and, and poultry and things like that today, is that humans and Neanderthals were top-level carnivores like wolves and bears. And they preferred um, these large 
herbivores, these large land animals. In fact, in, there are sites in England where you can still find the remains from horses and rhinoceros, you know, and uh, the oldest hunting site in the world that's been discovered is in uh, Germany, and there are the remains of over 10,000 horses that were butchered for edible meat, you know, so... This is what you know. I actually have uh, the, my next door neighbors have a bunch of horses. Maybe I should just <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, they're they're in danger now. Um, well, before we made them pets, right? You know, in right. in the in the previous world, uh, everything was food. You know, so it's same thing like with dogs. You there are still cultures that eat dogs. You know, and I can't imagine my poor little rescue pup. Well, listen, if I was on a stranded island with your rescue pup and no coconuts and fish, your pup is going right in, down my hatch. I mean, <laughs> like at some point, right? It's do or die. Um, you know, it was interesting and kind of a little bit um, uh, shocking to hear Dr. Sebring talk about. He's like, all right, well, every meal should start with protein. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people say the opposite. They're like, oh, it should be all ve- vegetables first. And, you know, he was saying, no, actually, everything starts with protein. And another thing he said about protein I like, I've mentioned before in other podcasts um, referencing your film is, you know, I really like this whole concept of, you know, protein as time release glucose. And it just seems like such a smart design, you know, in- inherent design, you know, unless you get one big animal, maybe you're not going to see one for another week, who knows, but you if you overeat the protein, despite what your body already makes in glucose per day, you still have an extra source there that's continually flowing. And I sort of never heard it that way before. And I really like that um, way to look at it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if you're not stuffing yourself with a lot of uh, sweet potatoes and yams and those kinds of things, you know, your body is, as you know, is going to use you know, protein and fats as a source for energy. And I think that's, that's what he is getting down to is that, if you follow the, you know, the paleo diet principles as they exist scientifically, not as they've been altered, that that they they are um, animal foods based diets, and you can eat like he says. Then you can surround it with all the vegetables you want, but those are just because you like them. You know, non-starchy vegetables like to eat them. They're not because they are required for your optimal health necessarily, you know? um, Right. We've always said, you know, and I think it's a lot of people have made this comment where, you know, you can live your whole entire life without ever consuming a carbohydrate, but you cannot live a good life with, you know, protein and fat. I mean, obviously it might be more optimal with a a wider array of, uh, of, uh, you know, food groups, but at the end of the day, you, you don't need it. Right. I mean, essentially. The thing that the media has, um, rallied around and a lot of folks in the paleosphere as well is this idea because it's politically correct to say to say fill half your plate with vegetables you know because that's pc you know it's like my god if you were to say no you ought to start with protein and that ought to be the first thing you think about you know they'd uh they wouldn't know what to do with that you know they they would be considered radical and and uh it's not what a lot of people have been trained to want to hear. You know, it's, it's the reason why shows like Dr. Oz and whatnot uh, um, keep people confused. It, well, that's because every week there's 500 different conflicting topics. I mean, he does cover everything. So it's, it's really, it's more of like just a, 
informational show versus, I mean, well, I guess just sort of a selection of things you can choose from, but it does. It's, and that's what you point out in your film. You, you Google healthy eating and there's a million confusing hits. You know, you'll get a vegetarian site claiming one thing. You'll get paleo primal or Atkins or, you know, high carb based diets. I mean, it's just, um, it's so confusing. So I agree with you that those shows can be very confusing because there's not really an opinion given either way on their end. It's just presenting us with a bunch of options that we can already Google and be confused about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And that's it. And there's more and more every day because, you know, you know, all, all the younger folks than me who grew up with the internet, they, you know, they get excited about whatever their dietary belief system is. And all of a sudden there's a blog and they're right, you know, and they're, they're the new, I've been doing this for three weeks. I'm the new authority. And in fact, let me sell you a course, but, um, (laughs) there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Excuse my being sassy there for a minute, but, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate, uh, uh, that there isn't a benchmark that people understand. And this is one of the things that I think is offered by this new scientific research is saying, well, if this is how we became human and this is what made us the, you know, smart and the best hunters and the able to dominate the planet, which it did, um, maybe there's something we should pay attention to there and maybe something we can learn from that. Whether or not people want to hold to it 100% is, you know, a personal decision. But if you at least start with accurate, as scientifically accurate information as we can possibly muster, then, um, you know, then you can make your choices from there intelligently. But unless you have all the information, you know, if all you've got is, uh, you know, a vegetarian vegan perspective, you know, and you refuse to hear any other perspectives, um, you can't make your best decisions, whichever, whichever path you decide at the end. There is so much conflicting information. I, I do agree with you. Like you just take, and some of them are quite scary. Like if you go on the vegetarian vegan route, you start to be so scared of ever eating a piece of meat based on whatever information is presented. That's not accurate. Uh, but, and again, you know, like not to say that it's not a choice and that there aren't healthy vegetarians and vegans out there who are doing well. Right. Of course, there are people that feel great. Um, but I hear you. It's it's why not look at all of the information and, and make a decision and also the science. You know, I like that woman at the vegetarian convention just claiming that meat clogs arteries. It's like that woman is on a false information train. I feel sorry for her. You know, I mean, like I want to like call her and be like present her with some science. Um, and you know, well, yeah. and instead she's eat, she's making soy jerky and uh, we you know I, I can't even talk poorly enough about soy. I won't even get started. So, you know, it's just, that was just making me laugh, but also uh, frightened for this person, you know, in their life. Well, and that's just it. And when you, when you talk about healthy uh, vegans and vegetarianism, I mean, we have to be honest is that that's relative, you know, I mean, it's like even Dr. Eid says, it's not that you can't survive. And especially now in our modern day and age, since you can take synthetic vitamin B12 and things like that that you're not getting out of your diet and hopefully you're finding some way to get the essential fats even though they're harder to get from plant sources you know and there's no guarantee that they will you know be absorbed or be converted by the body to the things you need it doesn't mean that you're at optimal health agreed you, yeah. And also, if you don't, if you have a baseline of feeling a certain way and you've never reached another level, it's almost like you don't know it can get better until you get there. Right, exactly. You know, it's it's the same with the controversy in the, the paleo diet world when people are, you know, 
you know, really heavily promoting because it's popular, you know, paleo pancakes and paleo muffins and paleo bread and paleo cookies. And, you know, besides the fact that, of course, there's no such thing. But right, that, it doesn't exist. It's, it's actually, yeah, it's a, just an illusion. <laughs> yeah, that it's just a marketing term now because the word is popular. Um, it's just, it's really easy to overdo that kind of stuff, even if you're trying to eat essentially human foods and avoid the non-human foods. Uh, listen, I want to talk about the human and non-human foods for a second because there's some interesting comments in your film about that. But, you know, I talk about it all the time on the podcast where I cannot buy a bag of paleo granola because it's gone. I mean, I'm going to overeat. Like, you know, it's just too, sometimes that stuff, you just get carried away. You can't just have one paleo cookie, right? You know, it's a little <laughs> bit, a little bit, you know, daunting. Um, on the non-human food and human food, first of all, I want to talk about this amazing sort of fact about grains that one of, um, I forget the scientist in your, in your film, you know, so in your film, you, you talk with people and interview people that, you know, are responsible for mapping and, and, and looking at the DNA of species from, you know, how many, over how many years. And they, one of them said that arthritis was virtually absent from the archeological record before agriculture and grains. Yes, and we do know that grains is a trigger of autoimmunity, Hashimoto's, and arthritis, and, and probably some others. I just found that fascinating. I mean, that's something that you can't deny when you've got people who've mapped things over millions of years, and you're talking about in a lab under a microscope, and they're not seeing anything negative in this one area until the advent of agriculture and grains. It says a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Dr. Eads, way back in um, Protein Power, has found a site in um, in the United States, the Hunan Dig, I think it was called, with an H, where uh, they had the bones of the people who were hunters, and then just a few hundred years later, when they had becoming ag- become agriculturalists, and the change in their bones was radical and dramatic, you know, just like the general understanding that we dropped four to six inches in height and got weakened brittle bones. We previously had very robust skeletons, you know, dental caries exploding, you know, in the archaeological record, which, you know, the bones when they dig them up. And, um, and previous to that, almost non-existent, you know, these kinds of things. So you'd think that would be a wake-up call. <laughs> you know, right. you know, if it wasn't good for humans when we were at our peak and we first switched over and before the world was polluted and there were herbicides and fungicides and pesticides and all these other things that now affect our food system and our uh, the foods we're that are put in front of us for us to consume. And it still did this to people. Do we really think it's going to be any better? <laughs> right. Is, is it going to all of a sudden just change course on us? Right. I yeah, it. For, for us now. I mean, you can alter them a little bit genetically so they have fewer, you know, anti-nutrients in them. So, you know, because the plants don't want to be eaten. I think that's one of the really interesting <laughs> things. You know, Lane Sebring, he's, you know, in the hill country of uh, Wimberley, Texas. And he's he's really funny. And, and, uh, and he talks about that. And he says, you know, Plants don't want to be eaten. That's why they've got poisons in them because they don't buy any animal. You know, they've got anti-nutrients that are... Maybe to, that's why it takes four stomachs to, to get the thing down, you know? <laughs> and those are for the ones that are, that are okay to eat that stuff. Right. You know, but he says, whereas fruits and things like that, when they are in season, when they happen to occur where you live, you know, those offer themselves up freely and there are no negative effects. It's just like... Um, 
uh, recap, re uh, sequestering the carbon into the soil by proper animal husbandry with cows, you know, makes the world and the planet better. It, it regenerates it. Well, humans, if they were eating those kinds of foods, they do the same things the cows do. They would just, you know, leave the seeds deposited in a pile of fertilizer somewhere. And, you know, it helps uh, regenerate uh, life. Whereas, uh, Are you saying we should go to the bathroom outside? <laughs> no, I'm well, kidding. I'm just saying they used to. I'm, I, I don't think any of us would necessarily be really comfortable with that. Although I did do that, Boy Scouts. Yeah, I do it on hikes, but that's rare. You know, I have to be in the middle the of nowhere. <laughs> Up in the Sierras, but you know, right. <laughs> that's not bothering anybody there. I hope. You know, although I can't say that it, you know made life any better for anything that lived up there now that I think back. <laughs> we might have ruined an ecosystem, but that's okay. Well, <laughs> on the non-human food, human food. So, you know, Dr. Lane Sebring in your, in your film, you know, I, I just, let's, let's talk about potatoes because, you know, they're sort of, they're put on an occasional list, you know, in the paleo primal community, but it seemed to be, I could have misunderstood this, but it seemed to be that, you know, Lane Sebring put it in the non-human food category with beans. So where do you stand on potatoes? What's your opinion of them within all of the research and everything that you know? Well, I I don't think we're supposed to eat them. You know, it's the, it, like Dr. Sebring says, and, and if you follow this arc of uh, human foods that made us human in becoming human, you know, potatoes were not part of the that story. They've only been around really in 500 years or so in popular use. Um, and I'm not an expert in that, so someone may have better numbers. But, um, but as far as food for humans, it falls on that same list as, I mean, technically dairy. But, you know, Dr. Sebring and others make exception for, you know, grass-fed butter because they want the diet to be doable for people in modern times, but still not something that would uh, harm them or take away from their uh, optimal health. So um, for me, you know, I, I think it's a no-brainer and I'm, I don't really like the taste of starchy foods anymore. You know, I'm, I've become much more savory in my palate, personal palate, and um you know, it's interesting. It's it's kind of a political thing more than it is a scientific thing. Because, you know, people hem and haw and, you know, even even Dr. Cordain on occasion is hem and, hemmed and hawed. But the last thing I saw off his blog a week ago said no potatoes, <laughs> you know, on the what what are paleo foods and what are not paleo foods. Right. So, so I think some of it is um, that people just don't want to give up those kinds of foods. They, they want to find some level of that that they can still eat. And mind you, when you're young and you're fit and you're healthy, like many people in the paleo community, I mean, when I went to paleo FX, my God, it was like walking into the superhuman field. Nice. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I remember when I was, you know, at my peak in athletics is you can get away with a lot. Right. But that, that doesn't mean that it's the best for you, but you can get away with it. And it won't necessarily make you fat if you are moderate, you know, uh, but no no one can really say, well, wait a second, 40 years from now, what is that going to mean to you and your offspring, you know, what, you know, or 50 years. And my, and I, we don't have that kind of vision in the same way that we missed the nine 11 thing. And, and, um, and people are stubborn. I mean, that very popular folks, um, and mind you again, I also, I have not met them and I, no disparagement of them, the folks that do the whole 30, Mm -hmm. 
got very popular in the media because they were strict. Right. Very strict. And they, they were eliminating very, butter in that whole 30 phase too. It's right. And originally it was, and no potatoes. And I saw them on a morning news show and I said, see, there you go. I mean, that's really interesting that they were featured because of that difference. And yet a week later, and I, I mentioned this to Rob on his podcast, Rob Wolf, that a week later on the blog was white potatoes. Welcome back, old friend. <laughs> friend you or foe, white and potatoes. I thought, <laughs> and, and the takeaway that I recall from that was that it was because their community thought that it was okay. Not the science, you know, not right. the history of human evolution, but the community wanted it. So it's kind of like, well, yeah, if you're losing weight, maybe not. You know, you know, right, or like not as bad as grains, so if you can afford to do it, okay. It's, it's not as harmful as some of the other choices. And, and, and who's to say whether you can afford it or not? That's right. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly can't. Um, you know, about your personal, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what, and again, I mean, everyone's different, but... What is your, do you, like, what's your daily carb consumption around? I mean, are you always in a state of ketosis? Are you, you know, I mean, what does it look like for you? Well, I don't know if I'm always in a state of ketosis because I got one of those little breath analyzer things, but because of my heart defect, when I was trying to use it, I was at altitude and I couldn't blow it long enough to get a consistent <laughs> readings. So, you know, so much for that. So, but the thing is, is, is that well, sometimes um, you don't even need that. You just go by how you feel, but just curious, like what your regular, I mean, you must know and keep track or kind of have an idea in your head because you well, know yeah. so much about food. Well, I, I eat protein at every meal. Just, I, I do it just like Dr. Sebring talked about. I start with protein. I add healthy fats, which, you know, I use, um, uh, Kerrygold grass-fed butter. I don't have any problem with that. And I use, uh, you know, coconut oil. And um, I eat raw nuts and seeds here and there. I eat avocado. Um, but I'm primarily centered on meats and fats. And I eat, you know, and I have salads. I'll make a, you know, a tuna salad with sliced eggs in it and kind of, you know, just for variety's sake and stuff like that, and a little bit of vegetables or a, a homemade ratatouille or something like that, because tomatoes don't seem, you know, to me, you know, I haven't noticed a problem, but I'm also in my 60s now and with a heartburn defect. So <laughs> my, I'm going, well, I don't know, I could eat tomatoes once in a while. See, that's me making my exception, not sure. knowing, not knowing uh, whether or not I uh, might do better without them. Um, but really, that's it. Yeah, at, at this point, just for convenience sake, I mostly have eggs of some kind in the morning. You know, if there's leftovers from dinner, sometimes I'll throw that in with it, whether it be fish or, you know, chicken or steak or, you know, and I make grass-fed beef stir fries. And, you know, I get the best food I can afford to get at the time, you know, and it's not always grass-fed and it's sure. not you know, all, not always pasteurized. I mean, I'm learning how to negotiate Miami Beach at the moment, and the the choices here are not as good as in Los Angeles. Yeah, you know? we have a lot of great choices here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I lived in LA for years and years and years, and it's um, yeah. The the West Coast is particularly uh, you know in good shape for making good choices. Lots of variety and and some better pricing too on things. And Trader Joe's, of course, wherever that's available, if you make wise choices, you can get a lot of good things there too. But I mean, that's what I do. And I drink. So you don't really eat a ton coffee. of vegetables. So you're, pro you're probably what under 50 carbs a day naturally, just because you're not really eating a bulk of 
yeah, veggies prob- and fruits. Probably, you know, and and um, because I'm not in sports and things anymore, and I'm not, you know, trying to be a cover model. <laughs> you know, I you, you I, actually could though. If I, anyone looks online and sees what CJ looks like, you could be a male model. Totally, you could be in a magazine modeling a watch or something in a suit. I, I think so. Well, thank you very much. I think Mark Sisson probably has better abs because he can work out harder. But <laughs> you know, um, uh, and I guess I'm a couple years younger than Mark, maybe. But uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you for this yeah, kind no, of work. Really, it's it, well, it's inspiring um, well, because you're think- you're talking about something where everyone wants to look like you at your age. I mean, and I think that's why Mark is so popular. He's 62. He looks amazing. He practices what he preaches, and um, he and his wife are the perfect epitome of those sort of results. And it's always, ins- I mean, that that inspired me. You know, looking at Mark and going, he's 20 years older than me and looks. 20 times better what is going on i'm doing something wrong so well, I, you know i mean he's uh and you're sort of on the same level of well, inspiration. We're, actually now as it turns out we're the same age i think what's interesting though is that i've been able to stay looking like that i think only because i eat this way oh, yeah because when i was in my early 20s and i'm just eating a low-fat higher carb diet and stuff like that. I weighed 230 pounds. I looked like a Husky football player. My mom would just call me this big Husky Norwegian, right? Um, and that kind of thing. And now, you know, um, let's see. When I was a raw food vegan, I was down about 160 to 162 and even going to the gym all the time. And now I'm probably about 172 average. And that's without being able to work out very much. Quite honestly, I just have to do it to tolerance. But I'm sure, I, I, based on my you know, earlier years, that it's only because I'm eating this way. You know, And it's, that's a nice uh, bonus. And I think, in my case, a very smart thing because you, know, you don't want to carry extra weight if you've got heart issues and that kind of stuff. But, uh, well, it also yeah. proves the example that you can look and be as fit and slim and trim as you, and it really is, you know, speaks to the fact that 80% of our body composition is really diet. I mean, you know, maybe 10% stress and the other exercise, but that even if you can't, for some reason, exercise hardcore like other people can, you can still achieve the same results through food. And and that it doesn't, you know, because a lot of people just feel like, oh, now I've got to start working out. And I always tell people, you know, master the food first. You don't have to become a workout person or a gym person. You'll see the results if you just eat the right way. You know, I mean, you might see them faster and, and a little bit more defined if you lift some weights and exercise. But at the end of the day, it's it's really just the food. And I think that's a misconception that people also have to have exercise. Obviously, I would condone exercise for everybody. But, you know, for the people that can't or have a heart issue or something, they feel like, oh, well, I can't achieve the same results. And you're the perfect example of someone saying, yeah, you can. Well, yeah, yeah. uh, You can take it as, you know, you can make your life and your health and your, you know, body uh, optimal for your um, conditions for the things that you're dealing with. And certainly, you know, once, once, if you had weight to lose and you lost the weight, that your, your shape is going to be different if you're lifting some weights and whatnot because of your muscle tone and things like that. But yeah, you can go a long, long way um, and much further than most people think, I suspect, um, just by the diet. And I think the thing that's interesting too about the diet is because when people first change over to these ways of eating. Of course, you know, we've got our old favorite foods and what mama fed us and, you know, uh, the emotional connections to foods and those kinds of things. But, and Dr. Sebring's patients mentioned this too, over time, their palates changed. 
and they didn't crave the carbs like they used to. Um, oh yeah. We see that all the time. I mean, not only just with me and other people I know, but a lot of our success stories too. It's, 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 it's hard because at first it seems like a life sentence to never enjoy a piece of cake or something. And so you know, <laughs> people project, you know, 60 years in the future, like I'll never be able to eat a bowl of pasta. And again, it's like, well, the thing is, is try it for two months. You won't want that but like your taste buds will change. And, you know, mine moved over from being more of like a sugar craving to salty savory, you know, and, um, I look at grains now and, you know, again, it, it might be a Thanksgiving stuffing cheat or something, uh, once a year, but for the most part, I look at it and I'm just like, uh, that's just, I just don't crave it, um, anymore. So I think people just don't even give themselves a chance to change it because the mental fear of never having something again, which no one's saying you never have to do it, you know, have it again, but they feel like it's some sense to never enjoy something that might be a non-human food, you know, which is not what the community is saying, right? You know, you're a human being, you're going to be at a party, someone's birthday, have a bite of cake, but um, it's the regular way of life, you know, we're talking about. Well, yeah. And I think that also um, has more of an impact depending on the age group you're in you know, when you're in your 20s and you're going out more and 30s, you know, it's a, I think a, some of those concerns are, are honestly uh, age dependent. It's like now that I've gotten older and I don't do that stuff so much, it's, you know, I don't mind saying no. I don't feel like I'm being left out if I go to somebody's party and they have, you know, cake or cookies or things like that. I'm not really sure. interested. I'm not really interested in them. And that if, if, uh, and I know in my own history, like when I was first coming off being a raw food vegan, I went to some place and I used to love pizza, you know. Uh, yeah, that's a big I, one for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and I went to this great pizza place in San Diego and I had it loaded up with all the different kinds of cheeses that I liked and all that kind of stuff. And it made me sick. <laughs> I said, wait, mm-hmm. this is not – even the first few bites, I said, well, you know – this isn't really the way I remember it. <laughs> yeah, because it does you know? taste weird and different after a long time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I didn't feel very good. And it's it's really self-correcting, I think, if people give it a chance. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is so um, good about the idea of giving it a giving, you know, give it a good four to six weeks and you know, before you start reintroducing stuff so that your body has a chance to, you know, acclimate to uh, these great healthy, you know, foods. And then, then it gives you some thing to contrast and compare against, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I think ultimately if people are serious about achieving optimal health and well-being and having the, you know, like I say, the health and the life you deserve is that they're, um, going to come back to giving it their best shot. Uh, and if I could speak to that just for a second is, you know, when I was in sports and whatnot, you know, in the sport of motocross, if we went out to practice on the track and there was someone that was faster and better than us, you know, we'd follow them and we'd chase after them to see what we could learn. And we always wanted to do our best, mm-hmm. you know, and yet there seems to be at least, uh, and I don't, couldn't give it a percentage or something like that, but in dietary change, uh, environment, whether it's the paleo or ancestral or primal or keto or those kinds of things, a kind of a caveat at that beginning of, don't worry, you don't ever have to stop eating this stuff that is a, you're going to fail mindset to me, you know, 
you know, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm going to go after the best I can do. And it doesn't mean that I won't trip up here and there, but I'm going to, if you aim for 110 and then you hit 90, at least you hit 90, but, but if you aim for 50, you're going to hit 30. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I agree with that philosophy. I I hear you. It's a a big one. Yeah. And I think that's a gift people should consider giving themselves. If I can say should, I know. That's a great way to put that. That is a gift. It is a gift. You're living, this is, you're, you're it for you, right? You're it. That's all you got right there in this uh, meat suit we're wearing. Um, (laughs) Might as well well put some meat in there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a, yeah, Lady Gaga got that one right, didn't she? (laughs) Yeah, oh my God. Love that. I need that dress. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, and I love how in your film, you know, a couple of people have said, you know, yeah, I love when people go on this fad diet or like, oh, I love it when people assume or judge paleo, primal, ancestral as if it's somehow a manipulation diet. But the thing is, is like all of the other diets are actually that. And this one is really the built in inherent system we have. When you look at things like zone or all of these other ways where you're supposed to keep the insulin steady and, you know, you're eating every two, three hours, that kind of program. Um that to me is manipulating the original programming, you know? And so I think when diets come along, people just assume, because most of them don't work, that that this is just another fad diet. And I love that, you know, uh, I forget if it was you or someone else said, well, then it's a two million year old fad, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was originally a Boyd Eaton uh, quote, uh, um, who was the fellow that inspired Lauren Cordain, Um he wrote the Paleolithic prescription, I think it was, many, many years ago. Um, and But since then, he's learned that it's different than it was when they wrote the book. So, you know, there's still, still things to learn. When you but, were a raw food vegan, um, well, first of all, how long have you been eating this way? In, oh, my in the gosh. paleo ancestral way? Um, probably mm-hmm. since, I, I mean, really seriously, I think... Um, very consistently since I started back on the film project. Um, because as I went out and I was interviewing these people and I said, ah, oh, well, this is a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, the science is here. Plus, when we were bopping around Europe in uh, the summer of 2006 doing the original interviews um, and you stay at bed and breakfasts there, I mean, breakfast is a meat platter, <laughs> you know? Yes. It's, it's mostly proteins, you know, and fats. And in fact, across from Box Church in Leipzig was a little outdoor restaurant. And I sat down for lunch with uh, my business partner, George Thompson, and ordered what we thought was going to be this little platter of mixed meats that, because there they had boar and, you know, bear and all these things that I had never tried before. And it was 20 bucks. And thought, oh, well, that, that sounds pretty good. But then the whole patio cracked up as they brought the tray out it was huge it was massive it could have fed five six people easy of all these meats you know of all different kinds couldn't even finish it you know and at a similar platter of all these you know great wrapped up vegetables and things like that but of course this being served to two people it was well how was the bear because i think everybody wants to know that how what did bear taste (laughs) like what kind of bear did you eat you know, I don't they think they got that specific, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it all tasted pretty good. In fact, my most exotic was when you, um, the First Nations people in Canada, when I met Dr. Jay Wartman up there, <clears throat> excuse me, and at lunch they served uh, 
uh, different kinds of salmon, of course, which is normal there. It's something they call candlefish, which is uh, uh, part of their diet. And they uh, we had seal. Um, seal, right. Which, from what I understand, it normally it tastes... illegal. No, <laughs> Well, up there, I guess it's normal. <laughs> yeah, it's Down normal. Here, yeah, otherwise, if you're in San Diego, you know, SeaWorld would get upset. But... Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting. That particular day, it was a little chewy, I thought. But, I was going to um, say, seal seems like it might be a little little chewy. <laughs> but like most things, I guess it's in the preparation. Right. Well, I accidentally ate whale once, and I uh, I didn't realize it, but there was a restaurant in L.A. that was since closed down because they were serving whale. And I should have known because later on, um, the restaurant, well, they, it was a, a Japanese restaurant, and they do like the chef selection, right, where they give you a bunch of food. And I know the day that I went, I no doubt I had humpback whale. But it, it was sort of like we should have known because the restaurant was called Hump. <laughs> so uh, uh, uh. It was kind of like in, in retrospect, we we're like, they actually are kind of calling it out on the name. Maybe we should have known. But uh, I didn't know that I didn't taste or know the difference. But I realized later I had eaten that and had to make some apologies to the ocean on that one for the whales. But um, oh, when, dear. Oh, dear. When you were um, when you were raw food vegan and I'm sure uh, based on what I know of your attention to detail and focus and, and, and just who you are, you know, coming from a broadcast journalism background, I'm sure you researched it and, and did the best you could to supplement in every way. How long were you a raw food vegan for? And, and at what point did things not feel right? And what didn't feel right? Like what were your symptoms or, or things that led you to go, you know what, this is not working? Right. Well, I was a raw food vegan for five years. I ate nothing but fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and sprouts. Um, I had been inspired by uh, some books in those days, and one was by Arnold Errett, which was about fruitarianism. <clears throat> and then, then there were another of uh, other vegetarian books. And it seemed to me that, well, you know, this couldn't be any worse than eating out at Jack in the Box. And I will never know whether it really will make me healthier unless I try it, unless I try it 100%. You know, and I had to figure out strategies. I mean, when I lived in Los Angeles, what I would do then was I'd buy a 25-pound box of organic apples and keep it in the back seat of the car, and I'd have a bunch of sprouted almonds with me because I couldn't eat too much fruit. I'd get too too much sugar, uh, so I would eat that along with sprouts when I was driving, I mean, um, the sprouted almonds or something like that, as what I thought was a protein source at the time in order to balance it out. Um, and I just, I was really dedicated. Anne Wigmore had uh, a healing system that uh, utilized a lot of uh, sprouts and blended drinks and things like that. Um, and a couple of healing retreats, that kind of thing. So I would start the morning like with these sprouted drinks and much in the same way that people try to do green drinks now as a breakfast alternative. And, um, and then those meals in those days were based on salads and, um, you know, healthy oils and things like that and some nuts and seeds. And that was really about it. Um, and, and I was just very dedicated and I got very thin even, and I worked out regularly. Uh, I got down to about 160 to 62 pounds. Um, I wrote a book called the Christ diet. <laughs> back then. Yeah. Well, cause I was part of a, an Essene community, which was, a. a, a a Christian church that um, believed that believed in this whole raw food idea uh, in San Diego, and that the by sticking to it, you would have a clearer 
connection to your spiritual nature. You know, in, yes, in, that's touted you know. a lot with uh, in the vegetable based <laughs> yes. communities. Yes. yes. Yeah, and um, you know, which 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 was an interesting concept, and it, I thought for myself that it was worth trying because this was after I had dropped dead. You know, I had a cardiac arrest. I had this, you know, near what I would call a near life experience. But all I remember out of it was feeling um, really loved and uh, as if you were a child being, you know, carried in your mother's arms. I mean, that's really the only thing I could remember from it. And um, I thought, well, gee, if you could connect to that just by changing the way you eat, how cool is that? So, so that was my motivation back then. And I thought, well, and if it's healthier too, great. So I did that for five years. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, that my mom was killed by a drunk driver. So sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was very, very sad. Um, you know, and we were very close, you know, she was my best friend in the world. And, uh, um, I just wasn't come recovering. I mean, I did a 20 day water fast after that to try to, you know, get, get, get a, back to your near death experience. You are, yeah, to, to, and to be able to let go of the pain and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's the last fast that I did. <laughs> I, w- I would not do it again. Right. That's um, brutal. Water fast it, is very brutal for 20 yeah. days. And that's when I had that eat fish experience. It's just something inside said eat fish. And did you, but at that moment, did you have a, you know, you know, did you have, because again, it's like, it's going against your current beliefs. So did you have a moment of like, no, I can't do that. I'm a raw vegan. Like, or was it just, it was just so clear. It didn't, it surpassed any kind of logic about it. I think that's probably the case. You know, it's just that, you know, I didn't feel good. I used to feel fine. I thought, you know, but I, I didn't feel any good anymore, you know, and it, and it was getting worse. So I thought at first it benefited you and you felt like, Oh, this is great. I feel good. You know, I've lost some weight. I feel clean. And then it it, just turned its back on you somehow or backfired. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is also, you know, I wasn't taking B12 or any of that. Nobody gave any of those kinds of considerations back then. Um, so, you know, I don't know what other ramifications there might have been because of not having those other kinds of supplementation that people might do now, but yeah, it's, it just didn't feel good anymore. And, um, I thought no matter how well-intentioned the people were that I had read that, uh, believed in this, that I needed to do something else. And that's what started back. I mean, in within days of the time I started doing stuff like that. And I started with fish, mind you, because of the vegetarian belief that it's easier to digest. Yes, that is yeah. such a thing that everyone's told and warned. Like, if you've been a vegetarian or vegan for a while and then you eat meat, you're going to get sick. That's a classic uh, warning, right? Right, exactly. And um, it just, I lived in San Diego, so fish was easy to get. And, um, you know, I instantly felt better within overnight. I was going to say, you must have, yeah. I mean, what was that day like? You must have really noticed even a difference probably a few hours after consuming it. Well, one of the things I remember is like within a month, I had gained at least eight pounds of muscle, mm. you know, um, which was interesting to me because, you know, I hadn't gained any while I was doing that. And like I said, I went to the gym all the time. So um, I thought that was interesting and I started feeling much better. And then I expanded my protein sources. So eventually it became basically, I was still eating the same foods I had been when I was a raw vegan, but I was now also eating meats, you know, and fish and chicken and those kinds of things. So a lot, 
you know, sort of what would look like what a lot of people think is, uh, uh, you know, your basic paleo diet now. Um, eating lots of fresh vegetables and, you know, modest amounts of fruits. And it was before anyone was inventing their own cookies and things like that. It's what people did for treats back then is they would make dehydrated sunflower seeds with dates or raisins mashed together, you know, or they'd make banana banana ice cream. There wasn't quite so much inventiveness, you know, and there wasn't a market for it either back then. Yeah, now we've uh, got raw food, vegan restaurants all over Los Angeles. There's so many opportunities and options for people uh, who are eating that way versus probably when you were, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was, it was like there was one restaurant up on Sunset Boulevard that sort of leaned in that direction. And it was uh, really hard to do, you know, to even going to Whole Foods or whatever supermarket was available to find really great food. The best place was a co-op in San Diego that I found. And that was the first time I saw all these organic foods and all the variety and fruits and vegetables and things like that. So it was it was the opposite way of difficulty when I started is that it was really hard to be a vegan. <laughs> it was really hard to be a vegetarian. I had to take my own dressings to restaurants. Sure, yeah, because there was nothing then. Absolutely nothing, you know. So I'd bring my own, you know, Bragg's <laughs> concoction. Amino acids. Yeah. Amino acid concoction, you know, sometimes, or, you know, olive oil and that kind of thing, and herbs. But, uh, and people thought I was a nutcase, yeah, I bet. I, I just, I'm so, it's so great your journey. I mean, it even makes your, your film so much more pressing and, and, and interesting because you've had this journey and used to proselytize about, you know, Christ diet and <laughs> eating raw vegan. And you've, you've experimented and spent a lot of time in, in, in all of these sort of ways of eating. And so to, to come to the conclusion you've gotten to. And I think it's just such an amazing contribution. I feel like, your movie is like this great evolutionary sort of like Disneyland ride. Maybe not, maybe, well, maybe not as exciting, <laughs> No, but it's so great. It's almost it's a great movie for anyone who wants to re-inspire their paleo primal decision and lifestyle, but also a great movie to show to people who are struggling with health problems and thinks and think that this is just a fad and, and does, and don't want to believe in the science behind it. I think it's such a great film to show to people to go, look, see the evidence yourself. You know, um, unless you're going to study it on your own, here's a great palatable way of receiving it because a lot of people aren't going to read a book on this. Um, although I have a feeling based on the documentary, your book is probably really riveting. I look forward to, to getting it as well. And I'm sure it has, like you said, a lot more information in it, even than the film. Well, yeah. I mean, and that was the reason for it was people would write. I thought the film film was going to be it, you know, and then people would write with more questions. And then it's like, well, let me ask Dr. Sebring. <laughs> and, then it, and then there were more questions. And I thought, well, okay, I just better write this all down and, um, you know, get it out there as another resource. Um, particularly since I said, uh, as I said to you earlier, the limitations of a film, you can only cover so much territory and tell a decent story and that's coherent and all of that. And I agree with you. I think it's, and I've come to uh, the conclusion as well now, um, now that I've had some time to step back from the film, is that it's a really great resource for people to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Exactly. You know, and this, they can see it for themselves. It's not, you know, some guru saying, do this. It was a very open-handed search. You know, I was 
all of these uh, scientists that I met, I didn't expect to meet. It wasn't some planned um, propaganda piece. It, it, in fact, it started, I started with Lauren, I was going to talk to Lauren Cardin and I was going to talk to Mike Eads. And at the end of the interview with Lauren, he says, well, you know who you should go talk to is, and it was this guy in Germany. I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but okay. So, you know, um, and that's how that whole thing happened, is that it was referrals from scientists who thought this was a really interesting search. And so they got behind um, helping tell the human, uh, becoming human story. And then, you know, if people want to dive deeper and understand more of what they had to offer, that's where the book comes in. And also the people were asking for a practical program. And I was kind of saying, well, nobody says it quite like the way I was told. So here it is, you know, so that you, you... It's a great companion book to the film, you know, because it has a lot more information, a little bit more of a maybe how-to or a little bit more explaining around uh, how you can do this versus the movie, which does explain a little bit, but it pretty much is giving the science and the evidence behind the principles. Yeah, it's much more how-to and practical uh, uh, orientation, you know, deeper into the why and how and then... And then that, and also I, I, I think it was a fun opportunity to tell a few stories because, like you say, it's like the the prejudicial um, attitude in the media and other places towards vegetarianism. It's like one of my biggest jaw droppers that I talked to people about in the early in the book is the the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, one of the uh, very wealthy foundation that's interested in obesity and health issues and childhood obesity is a big deal, and I. So I reached out to them and I talked to the doctor that was advising the head of the foundation. And uh, I said, well, have you read Gary Taub's book, Good Calories, Bad Calories? And he said, no. And I said, really? I said, it's really informative and you might give you some ideas towards the obesity epidemic and helping children. He said, he's told me he didn't want to read it because he didn't want to be upset. <laughs> that's an interesting uh, way to approach information <laughs> well yeah I mean here's a doctor that's supposed to be wanting to help people that would be their primary thing and this is what you and I and Mark and Rob and the people run into when we try to share this information with them is this predisposition to say I don't even want to hear it <laughs> because I'm going to get yes. upset Yes. <laughs> or what happened to Nina recently I don't know how to is it I don't know how to say her last name is it tyke holds or tech? Um, I'm not sure. Yes. Well, anyway, she, you know, the big fat lies book and where she got kicked off the nutrition panel because the, they didn't want her ideas being presented publicly in that forum. This was, you know, three weeks ago or so. Well, I mean, look, I've, I've had some friends who are resistant who then come to it on their own and want to try it. And then they bring it up that they're going to try it. And I might give them a little piece of information, not even advice, like not advice on what to eat, but just like, Oh, did you know, like a fact, like giving them a little bit of evidence behind it just to inspire them. They don't want to hear it. Yeah. It's like, that. it's like, when you're trying something that you're not, you're already resistant to, you know, you're, you're going into it already resistant and pissed off about it. That's not, that's, <laughs> yes. that's not the way to approach a health program, you know? So, and again, it's like you said, it goes back to people not wanting to detach emotional associations. They don't also want to think of it as a life sentence to never have grains again, um, you know? But I love the people that all say, oh, BS about the grains, that's crap. It's like, well, if you hear that, then look into it and see if it truly is for you. For me, when I look at the evidence, there's no doubt in my mind. But again, I've, I've looked at a lot of evidence to support 
my belief. So, you know, I just think a lot of those people that discount it never even jump in to look at it. Well, yeah, that's just it. It's like Barry Sears says in the beginning of the film, there are three things in life which are very visceral, religion, politics, and nutrition. They're all based on belief systems, and none of them respond well to challenge. Essentially, we say, don't confuse me with the facts, because in my heart, I know I'm right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I know, and I love that you bring that up at the beginning of the film, because we come across it a lot. Well, yeah, and that's just it, is that people don't like their belief systems challenged. But the point is, is that it's, well, you know, and and I know there have been times in my life when I read different things in different areas that challenged my belief systems and my brain hurt, (laughs) you know. It's like, ow, ow, that's not what I've always heard. But that, you know, but if you really want to understand and know, you got to take it all in. You know, and then make decisions from there versus just simply arbitrarily saying, no, I don't want to know about that because it might disturb me. Right. You know, it's if your higher calling is, you know, your optimal health and well-being for you or your family or your loved ones, then, you know, it can't hurt to take a look at it all. Nice. What uh, in, in wrapping up, what, what's next for you? I mean, first of all, I want to tell everybody, you know, not only I, I bought the Perfect Human Diet film on iTunes, you can also get it through DVD on Netflix, and you can also go to Amazon and uh, purchase the book, or cjhuntreports.com is your website. What's next for you in this foray? I mean, I'd like you to just keep on making primal movies. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, well, actually, actually, I'd like to. I mean, Rob Wolf and I are talking about that, and we're trying to um, see if we can scrounge up enough support because movies are expensive. I mean, the vegan vegetarian folks have ver- seem to have little trouble raising money <laughs> for movies, right. and um, uh, so we'd like to do another one. And maybe, maybe even your audience could give us some feedback on whether or not they would support that kind of an effort. You know, to really, really tell the truth about the things that continue to ruin people's health, like the China study and vegetarianism. Oh, the China and, study, yeah, you know. Oh. The anti-meat, the, all the anti-meat things about, uh, you know, the story about meat is the opportunity to regenerate the planet, not that it's destroying the planet. You know, things like that. And uh, You know, uh, I, I, I want to touch, I know we're going a little over time here, but I, I want to touch on the China study for a second because I saw this film once called Forks Over Knives. I'm sure you know about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, I, wa- I actually watched it when I was in film school working on my project. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so like in the first 10 minutes... I was like, okay, I'm calling bullshit because they said they were talking about all of the different cultures and how they're so healthy because they don't eat meat. And they were talking about, you know, the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. And I actually just written a documentary that had to do with that whole region of the world where I know they eat a ton of pork. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I was just watching this movie. I'm like, wow, within the first 10 minutes, they're literally giving me a fact that is a lie. Not only do they eat a lot of pork and stuff, they, they, it's, it's holy to them. To them, that's like the most, they, they do ceremonies around pigs. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, you know, they, they love it. And they ate also like 80% saturated fat in the form of coconut and pig fat and everything else. So here's this film telling me that this society is healthy because they don't eat these things. And yet I had just written a documentary knowing way different. And I'm going, oh my God, like first 10 minutes. First 10 minutes. So uh, it's just such a disappointing film to me and presented with a lot of false information. And they, they're the ones that really touch on that China study where, uh, for people that don't know, what they, they, they injected basically mice with like meat protein and casein from milk or something. I mean, I forget the yeah. combo, but can you sum up or, or well, sort of I mean, give us your opinion on that China study really quick? Well, I mean, the, the short version is, is that they didn't um, 
the positive, they did not tell about the positive results and they skewed the negative results. And it's, it's, it's a very long conversation. But Dr. Eads, if you go onto his um, blog on protein power, he has a, a really great um, analysis Oh, of the China because he actually read the real China study, <laughs> you know. And this so is Dr. E's. That's E A D E S for people that right. are interested, right? Right, exactly. Um, so that's probably your best way to get that kind of information. But that's, I mean, that's the point: is you get these people who cherry pick the information instead of just open-handedly um, putting out everything that exists, you know. And uh, you know, they'll only show the. Um, points or they'll skew the points that they think prove their point. So those are, I mean, the truth is, is those are propaganda films right. with, with a, a particular goal in mind. And that's to convince you that that perspective is correct. And the trouble is, is a lot of people watch those things and they go, oh yeah, absolutely. And then they go out there and they start marching in an army for them. And, but they don't do their own checking. Right, right. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. So. So there you go. Well, thank so. you so much for your work. And, you know, I, I know that if you guys did any kind of fundraising campaign in the paleo primal community, I cannot, I mean, I, I feel like everyone out there listening and in general would absolutely pitch in to have another wonderful film and documentary about the subject. And it's something we need more and more of. And uh, your work is so great. So I, I wish you and Rob Wolf the best of luck in that endeavor because we could use another one of these. Thank you so well, much for joining us. You bet, and we'll work on locking that down, and I'll be—I'll certainly update you, and I'll be at Paleo FX for the first couple of days, along with Rob and stuff. So, if people want to say hello and give us their thoughts, that would be great. Oh, that's great! I'm not going to be there this year. Hopefully, next year, but I would love to meet you at some point too. And and again, just love your film. Thank you so much for your work, and um, best of luck with the future endeavors. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Got a passion for primal? Join Mark Sisson on a mission to save the world. Become a Primal Blueprint certified expert today. With our dollar down payment program, it's easier than ever. Just pay $1 to start and $89 a month for the next 12 months. The Primal Blueprint Expert Certification is the most comprehensive online Primal Paleo certification program of its kind. Explore the fascinating world of ancestral health from the comfort of your own home with this premier multimedia experience. Perfect for health and fitness professionals, as well as individuals looking to up-level their primal practice. Visit primalblueprint.com slash get certified to put a dollar down today.